You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and we've got a conversation for you this week, uh, and it's a good one. Uh, It's with Laurie Bazala. Uh, Now, Laurie is the president of the Edward W. Hazen Foundation in the US, um, which is a national grant maker over there that focuses on supporting programs uh, around organising and leadership by young people and communities of colour, particularly aimed at dismantling structural inequity based on race and class. Um, and we had a really interesting conversation when we sat down a few weeks back now, um, talking about uh, the work that the Hazen Foundation does funding racial justice and what they'd learnt about um, about how best to do that. And also the sort of bigger question about whether actually racial justice was now such a cross-cutting issue that it should be seen as uh, not just a cause area in itself, but something that should be within the purview of all grant-making organisations and foundations. Um, we talked about funding social movements and grassroots organising, which is something the Hazen Foundation does a lot of, uh, and something we talked about quite a few times on the podcast. Um, but I talked to, to Laurie, and it was really interesting to hear her thoughts on the challenges uh, that, that can present for funders to, to do that responsibly, but also the opportunities that it presents and, and why it's a very powerful way of kind of pursuing social justice goals. Um, we also talked about spending down um, because the Hazen Foundation took the decision uh, not that long ago, a few years back, after almost 100 years of, of operating to spend down over a very short period of time. Um, and it was really interesting to get Laurie's perspective on why that decision was taken uh, and some of the practicalities about how you do that. We also talked about mission-related investment um, because, again, the Hazen Foundation has for quite a long period now been a mission-related investor with all of its assets and investments, um, so it invests in, in line with its mission rather than just seeing grant-making as the sole way of achieving that mission. Um, so without further ado, let's get into the conversation. I'll be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I'm here with Laurie Batsala. Hi, Laurie. Hello. And Laurie is the president of the Edward W. Hazen Foundation in the US. Um, And maybe the best place to start before we go into a a conversation uh, that hopefully will cover lots of topics is just for you to say a bit about the foundation and what you do there and kind of how you you came to work in the field of philanthropy. Sure. Uh, So the foundation actually was founded in 1925. So it's been around for a while. Our mission statement as it's written um, is to support youth and communities of color in dismantling structural oppression based on race and class. Um, That's an evolution of the mission statement over time, but uh, it speaks to, in a contemporary context, the interests of the founders in character and moral development of young people. So a lot of our work is um, is in education and directly with young people. And we support education justice organizing by parents and youth organizing 
on a range of social justice issues. And all of the work is with a very strong frame around racial justice. So I've been at the foundation first as a program officer and now as president. And before that, I was running uh, youth and education programs in New York City, which is my home. And you know, how did I come to work there? Well, I answered an ad, actually, um, of all things. So, and was hired by a woman who I, I really have not, nothing that I can say can capture really her skills and just her ability to move this foundation in some really profound ways. And that's Barbara Tavares. Um, she's still in the sector and someone I greatly admire. Great. Um, and yeah, there's lots of, I want to pick up on there about um, the work that you do and the kind of focus on social justice and supporting grassroots organisations and movements, which I think is incredibly timely. And I think there's some sort of really interesting um, opportunities there and challenges that I'm sure you'll have lots to say about based on your experience. Um, I think one thing I wanted to, to pick up on was, you know, you mentioned there that the, the Hazen Foundation has been around uh, since 1925 and that the, the current mission is a sort of reinterpretation of the, the original founder's intention. But, but one of the things I know that you've received um, a reasonable amount of attention for is that you took the decision or the, the, the Board of Trustees took the decision in 2019 to um, shift away from maintaining the endowment in perpetuity and to spend down, I think over quite a short time period, maybe five years. What Can you just say a bit about what, you know, what prompted that, what the rationale was for doing that and sort of why that is now the focus of the organisation? Absolutely. Um, so the two areas of work that uh, that we're currently active in um, that I mentioned, education, justice, organizing and youth organizing are really um, fairly new fields in in some ways. I mean, obviously, young people have organized as long as there have been young people to change the conditions of their lives and to confront power where it is acting against their interests. But the foundation has been sort of building our capacity to do that work and following the field in its growth and development for, oh, you know, 25, 30 years. And what happened really was that we, we were doing some just internal work about who we are as a small foundation that has really um, been very intentional and very focused in these areas. In a moment when the challenges around racial justice in this country um, and the attacks on young people of color were so intense. So this was really the process started with the 2016 presidential election and seeing the ways that our grantees were stepping into that moment with such courage. For example, young people who are undocumented, who are on DACA, the dreamers, right? DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivies. And so these young people who had attained a status by executive order from the previous president were now potentially, you know, could be deported potentially, you know, if they took the legal challenge to do that. And yet they were still doing the organizing. Their families, many of them mixed status, um, where they had parents without papers. They knew that they could get home from school. I mean, I remember being in a meeting with a bunch of young people in Denver, Colorado, and the trauma that these young people were feeling in this moment. Um, I could get home from school and my parents won't be there. You know, ICE will have come, you know, or they'll do a sweep at our school. All the different ways that they felt under attack and the fears were not stopping them. If anything, it was giving them more reason to take on those challenges. And also it was a catalytic moment in terms of politicizing a lot of people. 
I mean, you know, if you remember the march in Washington, the women's march, you know, it was it was huge. So then there was also this question of how do people become active in these movements and in this work? And it just seemed like the way that they were stepping up, our our foundation needed to think about whether we were also stepping into that moment with the same level of courage. And there is an assumption in philanthropy of perpetuity, but that's just an assumption. And unless it's written into your founding documents, which as we learned when we did the research, it was not written into it for Hazen, you don't have to stay around forever. And sometimes maybe the infusion of resources and putting it into the hands of the people doing the work is the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I mean it's really interesting. You talk there about courage, and I think that's a in a really important word because it seems to me in that that decision to be made between taking a a sort of spend down approach or the the default which has been perpetuity, the the challenge I guess is letting go of that idea that you yourself as an institution need to stay around over that that longer term because otherwise you have to sort of give up power or control over the issues that you're working on did did you when you had those conversations about deciding to take that spend down approach how did you kind of navigate some of that and and what were you thinking in terms of what you wanted to put in place so that you could kind of have confidence that when you did shut the doors on the foundation you would be leaving you know the 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 organizations you work with and the kind of infrastructure around you in a good place yeah that's so important i i have a colleague who it's She's great. And she says when, when people ask uh, about, you know, foundations taking risk and she goes, there is no such thing as a foundation taking risk. Let's just be honest. Like there is no risk. Maybe an individual in a foundation could lose their job, but the institution, like no risk, unless you're blatantly bla- breaking laws in who you give money to or how you do that. There's really no risk in making these choices. <laughs> um, and, and I really love that she says that because what it really speaks to is exactly what you named, which is giving up power. And, and you know, in our society, money is power. It gives you all kinds of ways to control people's lives and the work that's done in the world um, and decision-making and authority. Um, so nobody likes to give that up. I would say that for Hazen, I'm really, really lucky because my board is comprised of people who work in movement organizations for the most part and have a connection uh, to the kind of racial justice work that we do. And so, you know, the conversation wasn't so much around giving up the power as it was around how do we, first of all, how do we think about the role that this foundation has played in being a voice in philanthropy around um, funding this kind of work and the ways that we fund and the kinds of organizations that we fund because we've been very um, assertive in that and I think successful in a number of ways. But then if we're not there, there's this sort of like, what happens? Is there a void? Are there others stepping in? And I personally feel like, you know, there's sort of an organizational narcissism in that, you know, it's like, it's okay, we did it. And we did a great job. But it doesn't mean there's nobody else who can do it. And so if we make sure that we have relationships with those people and help to think with them about how to keep doing that and doing it well, do we still need to be there? And then in terms of the organizations that we support, you know, this is a really tough one. We are making much larger grants than we had before. They're multi-year general operating grants. 
Uh, that's a huge benefit to the organizations. They're able to do all kinds of things that they you know, would want to do in terms of um, building out their capacity. But we have to be sure that the that they're not um, sacrificing sustainability for some kind of short-term gain. And so we're really trying very hard to support their building capacity. I mean, these are mostly very small organizations. On average, there are like, I think we just did a scan of the current grantees and I think it's about $700,000 a year average budget. So not a lot. And our grant therefore is a sizable piece of that. So what our plan is and the work that we're doing right now is helping them develop the capacity to do better financial management, to fundraise. But also, you know, I truly believe that the more um, effective their organizing is, the more their profile as a legitimate, powerful, credible organization grows, the more likely they will be to attract resources. Um, so it's both giving them the tools to be able to do that, and then also, you know, doing our best to to get others in the philanthropic sector to look at both these individual organizations, but really what we think of as the point, which is the movement. You know, how do you fund, if not this specific organization, organizations in your community that are like this? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's a lot I want to, to pick up on that. I guess w- one thing um, is I, I've seen in things that you've written, you talk about there, um, we know us being at a, at a movement moment. So, you know, as you say, a lot of the idea of movements is not new and the idea of grassroots organizing is far from new, but it does seem as though we're a moment where, these things are happening at a scale and getting prominence maybe in a way that they haven't done before, or at least not for a long time. What, what do you, do you, do you think are some of the factors that have, that have led to that? I mean, is it just at the scale of the, the problems that they're seeking to address in terms of racial justice and climate justice, et cetera, have become so urgent that we have to do this? You know, is it that technology is playing a part or, or is there an element of people looking for alternatives to maybe traditional organizations that they feel haven't really shifted the needle on some of these issues? Yeah, I, well, first of all, I think there's there's not, you know, an either or mm. in this situation. I think there are multiple factors, obviously, right? You know yeah. that. Um, I do think that, uh, as I said, the 2016 election did catalyze a lot of people who were not engaged directly in any way. So that's one thing. So you've got more people. I think that the re- in the recent decades, the organizing that has happened, particularly I would cite young people's organizing, has demanded that we look at these issues, that we not look away. Just through the daily work of young people making sure that whether it's at the local level at their school board meeting or on social media or whatever vehicle they have at their command, that they are absolutely insisting that we not look away from the harm being done to them and coming up with solutions, right? And saying, we demand something. So they're both, they've both been pushing us to think differently. And now we're in a moment where I think a lot of things have happened. Um, Certainly the public nature of the sharing on social media of some of the murders of black men and state sanctioned violence in so many ways as it happens in communities of color. Um, The the presence of um, 
you know, whether it was the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, right? That that was another moment where there was real, there was long-term engagement of young people and others, but predominantly young people actually at the outset around issues of control of resources in their community. And that meant land, that meant water, really important basic stuff that then generates this opportunity catalyzed by this enormous challenge, a really existential challenge for their community. So lots of things like that have happened in ways like, you know, when during the civil rights movement, when on national television, you had people with fire hoses being, being, you know, sprayed at them and knocking them to their feet and being beaten by police officers. That was the first time Northern uh, United States residents really got on board with civil rights. It was in our face. It was having Vietnam War on television, right? That catalyzed and helped to move the anti-war movement. I also think that, you know, what's happened is that there are things that people have been organizing for for a long time that everybody has said, yeah, that's not going to happen, right? You know, that's just too radical. And we need those people to be doing that and to be saying that because you know what happens? Some of those things are happening now. You know, we have grantees who have gotten police out of their schools, 100% out of their schools. Everybody told them that was impossible. And now it's true. We have grantees who have closed detention and incarceration facilities for young people. They're saying, you do not lock up children. We will not go back inside. Many of these are kids who were inside themselves. And everybody was like, yeah, but you know, you need a system. You need a way to take somebody out of society. And they're like, no, this is, this is doing incredible harm. It is killing our generation. And now we have facilities that have been closed. So things that we didn't think were possible are becoming possible because they did that work for so long. I, I think that this, this point here is absolutely fascinating. I feel like it's a real element of tension in the world of philanthropy at the moment between the sort of, um, I guess some people would call it pragmatism or kind of incrementalism or the idea that you need to approach these problems slowly and work within existing structures. And those, particularly, I guess, younger people and people who work in movements and organising who might say, no, what we need to do is fundamentally dismantle those systems. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's sort of you saying that some of these movements have demonstrated that actually things that were thought impossible are possible. Do you think that has affected the view of funders about what is actually possible? And do you think they are willing to entertain a sort of wider realm of possibilities in the work that they do as a result? I would say yes. Hmm. Um, I would say that there's also something underlying all of that. And again, it goes back to power. Because for um, quite a long time in philanthropy, this notion of strategic philanthropy has driven a lot of decision making. And it's a model born out of sort of business practices, uh, you know, the return on investment and um, devising the strategy to get to the end point that you seek. And so the foundation defines the outcome you're seeking. It defines how you get to that outcome. And then it goes out and hires people to do pieces of that work, right? That's a very logical business model. It is not a movement model, right? It is not stepping back and saying those closest to the pain have to derive the solutions and be centered in that. 
it's saying we know more. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of sort of white supremacist thinking underlying that. We know more. Well, why do we know more? We know more because we went to fancy institutions for our educations. We know more because we have money. We know more because somebody told us we know more because they hired us for this job. Uh, so there's all these reasons, right? Um, but do we? I mean, we're not actually going through those things. So like some of the things that I talked about, about police and schools and how school discipline happens is not my experience, right? And I can read all the studies I want, but until, you know, young people sit with you and, and actually share why this is detrimental and what it means. And, you know, it was funny because I started doing our education funding at Hazen and I remember the conversations with young people and they were just so moving. So, you know, in one meeting in Los Angeles, some kids said, you know, there are four tracks in our school. There's low wage work track, military track, and prison track. And then there's college track, but we don't know anybody in the school who's on that, right? Um, that's quite a statement. Another group of young people in Denver saying, you know, this is about the quality of our education because we, we came to this issue because we care about getting a good education and it's not gonna be enough not to get kicked out of crappy schools. So their work was invested with a holistic kind of sense of what is a school that is gonna serve me and my peers, right? Not the way that I would have thought about it without listening to them, right? And letting them take the lead. Um, I may have lost track of your question entirely. No, so I, I apologize. No, 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 I think that's, it's, uh, no, it's really interesting. I guess it brings us on to I mean, a whole, a whole bunch of other things I wanted to ask about um, how you actually fund movements, because I think it, it seems, you know, you've been doing this this stuff for a while and you've learned a lot through doing it. It seems as though there are quite a lot of other foundations and philanthropic funders kind of waking up to the idea of movement funding and wanting to support some of these grassroots organisations. Do you think, um, you know, do you think there are kind of risks inherent in that if they come to it with the wrong mindset, either because they deliberately introduce stipulations or restrictions or sort of demands for measurement that that kind of are designed to soften the edges of the movement or to shift them away from tactics or approaches that are seen as as too risky or too extreme or even you know if they kind of don't do it deliberately as a funder but just by nature of the power imbalance I mean is that something you kind of see or worry about in this field? Absolutely you know it's it, there's so much discussion in philanthropy now about you know doing better about racial justice, for example. And, and you can make some really bad missteps in that. And you can also, so you can do more harm than good. That's quite possible. You can also be well-intended and make missteps. Um, but at least you're well-intended. And if you're also open to learn, um, maybe the end result will be good. Um, and then there's, you know, just the unintentional, you know, but like not even missteps, but just sort of not even trying to learn, just I still know best. And let me tell you how to fix racial justice. I'll fund these three organizations with little tiny grants that aren't going to really move them anywhere. And if they don't, you know, change the world in three years, I'm done. 
right? Um, and and it's or just you know make myself feel better by putting something on our website and naming something else, some one of our programs, something else, which also is happening. I hate to say it, but but there's a lot of performative funding, you know, and signing on of letters. But I think for people who really want to do it well, one thing that I think is critically important and is something that happened over time at Hazen and doesn't happen fast is you need to examine your own practices. You need to look internally. Um, Who is in your organization? How do you understand knowledge to be created and transferred? What are the mechanisms for accessing you and your funding. All of those things can really shift um, who who and how you fund, whether or not you can actually engage around movement work. So for example, you know, the board chair at the Hazen Foundation is one of the co-founders of United We Dream. She was a dreamer herself. We have a program officer who also was a dreamer and came up in that movement as an organizer. I mean, you know, our our board includes other people who have different roles in movements, uh, in movement work, running organizations, you know, Center for Community Change or, or, you know, wherever that is. And we did that intentionally. It started actually, though, I have to say, as far back as the 1970s, when um, Jean Fairfax who was at the time, um, she was a lawyer with the NAACP LDF. She was an African-American woman. Um, She was quite opinionated and quite able to articulate and move her point of view. And so what they brought her on the board, and from what we can tell, she's the first African-American woman on a national board in the United States. But she started asking these questions, right? She said, like, how do we know who's in charge of what happens in these organizations? Who's on their board? Who's on their staff? Who's in leadership roles? Um, just simple questions like that, that started to shape how we do our work. So we have, we've been collecting demographic data on our grantees for that long, since the 1970s. But then we also hold ourselves accountable for, you know, walking the walk. So also, you know, our own board is comprised predominantly of people of color, people in the movement. And then we've done a lot of things that we do. We, we just, you know, if we really want to fund organizations that are deeply embedded in community and that the staff is drawn from the people affected by these issues, they are not going to produce the kind of documents that many foundations expect. So we don't take written proposals now. We do an interview and we send the questions ahead of time. We tell them, you know, what we want to talk about. We talk with members, the young people, the parents themselves. Uh, We talk with board members. Uh, It's a rigorous process, but we try to make it, you know, both as as less laborious for them. So we, we try to remove the barriers of time and capacities that like, if you're a good organizer, you don't necessarily have to be able to write a good grant proposal, (laughs) you know? And if you're putting a lot of money into a development office, is that really where we want our funding going, right? So we've made some decisions to do things very differently. I do think one other thing I just want to say about funding movement work, this is something that we haven't done at Hazen because we're very small and we've made the decision that we want our money to go to the 
organizations that are the least likely to be funded by more traditional funders. So that's the grassroots organizations, right? But I, I have to call out a colleague who was at Atlantic Philanthropies, Kavita Medirata, who um, led their school discipline work. And obviously she had a slightly larger budget than ours. Um, and she used her position as the funder, not just of grassroots organizations, but of high level policy organizations and, you know, the Council of State uh, Governments and, you know, all of these different large, whether it was research organizations, policy organizations, et cetera. And she said, you know what, you have to listen to these people, right? The, these young people are going to be at the table with you for this meeting. And you know, she she actually used the deliverables part of, of being a funder, the power that she had with those organizations to be very explicit about how they were expected to interact with the, with the grassroots organizers. And as a result, you know, under the Obama administration, the federal um, school discipline guidance coming out of the Department of Ed incorporated the organizer's language, right? There was a lot of things that were done that really derived from how they framed the problem, how they understood the solutions that would not have been without her there. So let's remember that we, you know, that we do have this power. Let's pretend like, you know, we can use it for good, not just for evil. <laughs> we don't have to ignore it. We don't have to try to always squelch it. There are times when we actually can use it in support of movement, as long as we understand that we follow their lead, right? That we're not the leader absolutely I, th I think i mean it's a lot of really interesting stuff and in i think you're the point you were making about language and the sort of the forms of of language and of knowledge that that we prioritize or are willing to to sort of see value in i think is so important and and really fascinating i think there's there's something in in the the whole way in which the the language that we use in the philanthropy world is is either kind of deliberately or unconsciously exclusionary and i think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about kind of aping the practices of business i think increasingly the philanthropy world has become dominated by terminology that tries to mirror that of business or government rather than actually talking about the things that are of value and importance absolutely. in civil society absolutely i think this whole idea of uh, of return on investment in philanthropy is absolutely um, one of the deepest problems because the most intractable problems are not going to show a return on investment that's high in a short-term analysis. I mean, it's not. So here we are in the very, very privileged position of not having to report to shareholders, of not having to show a profit. What are we doing? I, absolutely. I, I, it's really interesting what you're saying about using your power as a funder. Because I was talking to somebody about this the other day and we were, were sort of saying, we, we both agreed, but we said the problem is if you're then engaged in sort of policy level discussions with government, even if you want to use language, you know, that's more true to the values of civil society, you, you sort of feel like it's seen as fluffy or not really precise or hard hitting enough. But as a funder, you know, what what is there a role that, that funders can play in actually, you know, because they do have the scale and the power, can they push back or sort of actually take a stand and say, no, we need to take, you know, the, these kinds of voices and this kind of language more seriously? Mm. Yeah, I, I think you can. I think that um, you can wield your social capital, your power mm. productively in ways and in relationship to government. You know, it, it's interesting that you say you use, you know, sometimes it falls into movement language can be fluffy or something. Mm. I I guess I'm struggling with that because I don't 
find it fluffy. I find it actually hard hitting. Real movement language can be extremely hard hitting. It can be very explicit. And, um, you know, so so I guess I don't, that doesn't resonate for me. That's not what I hear. I think about, um, you know, Rashad Robinson is on our board and, you know, listen to him talk. Yeah, <laughs> It yeah, is yeah. not fluffy. Um, good organizers, real clarity. Getting with members to a collective clarity is half of the work of getting, of the organizing, right? Of getting to uh, an outcome, right? Um, so I don't know. I guess I don't I don't see it that way. It is different than policy yeah. language, without question. It is different, but I don't see it as fluffy. No, I, I guess I was talking <laughs> to somebody about it in the context of the language you use, sort of about giving and philanthropy itself. So it's more talking about concepts beyond mm. those transactional ones and bringing in ideas of kindness and mutuality. And actually, I guess it's those ones yeah. that start to sort of talk about human values i totally agree if you're a movement and you're actually talking about an issue like racial justice you're very unlikely to be using language that's remotely <laughs> fluffy no so it's a, a slightly right. different thing no I, I take the point um on on some of the sort of practical questions about funding movements i mean you touched on it earlier in saying that you give kind of multi-year you know core cost unrestricted funding um and i know lots right. of people have said that's that's an absolutely sort of crucial starting point if you're going to fund movements maybe you could sort of say a bit about why that is so important from the point of view yeah. of the movements themselves and you as a funder. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, first of all, as a person who worked in and raised money for and ran nonprofits before I came to giving money to nonprofits, it's just so nice to get. Like, I mean, it's just like to be able to give that gift of breathing time and room and, and um, autonomy to an organization, that's, that's beyond movements. That's just like on a human scale, that's lovely. <laughs> but, uh, but in terms of the real question, the like, so why do it from a, from a standpoint of achieving mission and moving, um, moving the things that you want to move? For one thing, when you make a general operating support multi-year grant or core support multi-year grant, um, you've right with that, signing that check or transferring those funds to their account, you have given over the power that you have over someone who has a set of deliverables in a very sort of transactional way. You have said, I trust you with capital. And, you know, I do think that it is not uh, just a happenstance that um, people of color, particularly women of color, have far more trouble raising general operating support than white men. Um, we don't trust them with capital. So, so first of all, it's giving over power. What does giving over power allow you to do? It allows you to create a relationship that is based on things other than fear <laughs> or um, the need to convince you that what's happening is, the, is what you wanted to have happen. I mean, what you're really saying is, let's try and if not level the playing field, because we're, we're not living in la-la land, but let's at least try to strip away the things that, that are the very concrete ways that we have held the power back. So that's one thing. Also, if you've done a very sort of specific itemized contract around deliverables and so forth, you don't take into account the dynamics of social change. It's not linear. 
It's not predictable. When we set out to spend out, we could not have predicted a pandemic, um, racial justice uprisings, um, uh, the most, the, a presidential election that that just challenged all the norms of democracy in the United States. None of those things, right? So if we had made these grants to people and said, okay, this is what we want you to do, because we have all these ideas, right? Um, that would have been totally self-defeating. Instead, organizations started providing mutual aid in their communities and it was out of necessity. It was out of the fact that both the staff and community members were suffering. People were at risk of eviction, people were dying. And so they started doing this mutual aid work, but the really good organizers started to understand that this was about building authentic relationships with community. This was an organizing task that they were doing exactly what they would do door knocking, but they actually added this layer of trust because now these people look to you as someone who can, and an organization that can literally help, right? So we couldn't have predicted that, would never have known that was gonna happen. And there are many, many other examples like that. You know, a change of local government upends your strategy, totally, right? Uh, there's so many reasons that things change. So that's another thing. And, and then also, um, I think general operating support or core support, it allows organizations to say no sometimes. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, if, if you're getting general operating support from one funder and there's another funder who is offering money, but you feel like it would be mission drift for you off, you know, off to something that isn't really central to your community, that, that your members as a membership driven organization that your members have, have said is not at the top of their list, you can say no. And that's power also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just just one one final question on the the funding movements before I want to come come and ask you about a couple of other things. Um, it, it goes to something you said earlier about sort of not not always feeling the need to uh, to squash or to just or to immediately give away power as a funder, but actually to kind of you know embrace it and use it positively. Um, you know, one way I've I've heard that in some circumstances um, funders can use that positive power is that as well as obviously giving financial resources to movements, the the mere fact that they are willing to engage with them and fund them sort of brings legitimacy mm. in some sense or a kind of you know a stamp of mainstream acceptance do, do you find that is ever the case with some of the organization the grassroots organizations and organizers you work with I mean do they appreciate yeah. not just your money but the fact that you kind of are putting trust in them as as a well-known name absolutely so the, and there's a lot of ways that we've used that intentionally um so the strat the spend out strategy larger grants because again these are organizations that people are like, oh, they can't absorb a half a million dollar grant. That wouldn't be a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. So we turn around and say, well, we're giving it to them and now they will manage it well and they will do good work, right? So that's one thing that you can do. And because when I started at the foundation and the, the sort of field of work that we were engaging in wasn't recognized, we were a first, maybe second grant for a lot of organizations. And that 
makes an enormous difference, right? Just having a grant from a national foundation made a difference for them in being able to position themselves. Now, I will say that there is a challenge for no small number of our grantees in that they're too small for most large national foundations to support. They just don't make the size of grants. But then again, that's also their own inhibition about making larger grants to these organizations. But that's another story. But they're not going to under the current like structure. And then you have local funding. And these are organizations and people that are challenging the elite structures in a community. Generally, philanthropy in that community is one of those elite structures. And as a part of that, you know, their board are the people you're targeting, right? So that can be very difficult. And as a national funder, we can signal to others how to support them. And then we can also help to build vehicles for the larger funders to participate in. Funding collaborators, for example, have been a very successful method for us in doing that. Um, we moved $32 million to education organizing through a funding collaborative. We're one of the co-founders of the Funders Collaborative on Youth Organizing, which is now 20 years into its work of moving money to youth organizing. And there are large foundations that could not get the money to these small organizations without that. So interesting. I could, I could happily talk about funding movements all day. Um, I'm aware I'm in danger of <laughs> taking up too much of your time. So there are a couple of other things I wanted to, to touch on, although they're related. Sure. Um, and one, one is around racial justice as, as an issue. And I guess the question is, you know, you've been working in this field as an organisation for a long time. Um, but to what extent do you think there's been, there is or needs to be a shift of mindset away from seeing racial justice as a cause area and more towards seeing it as a kind of cross-cutting issue that actually is the concern of all philanthropic funders and, and donors? Um, and kind of, and if so, what does that mean in practice? You know, do they all need to start funding the same sort of work you're funding, or is it more about the ways in which they fund, even if they're funding in different areas? So. I think that funding racial justice work or funding is different than funding with a racial justice lens in a way. So you can be explicitly funding racial justice work, whether it's grassroots organizations or race forward, color of change, you know, advancement project, those kinds of NAACP, right? But I do think that that there are there are some ways of thinking about racial justice work that can be detrimental. And I do think that isolating it as at, as your issue, it has pluses and minuses, right? Because on the one hand, then you can do these kinds of things where you can take an organization like Color of Change that, you know, is their whole mission is around racial justice and put money into that. If you're funding other issue areas, they might be doing work on that issue. And you can fund that piece of work. But again, it's not the kind of infrastructure building. That's okay. It's just a choice. I do really think that um, there are also dangers, although I, it's my inclination, but I do think there are dangers in doing it the other way the, that you mentioned of, of understanding that racial justice is the lens through which you're doing your work. The danger about that, I think, is that unless you're being accountable to that, it gets mushy, right? And, and what does that actually mean? But you can create ways of being accountable for that. Fundamentally, it is the underlying soil in which everything in the United States grows. And I would say, you know, the UK, from what I understand, similarly, although it's not my experience, so I don't want to make, you know, any kind of bold statement. <laughs> on that. But in the United States, without question, the wealth of our nation is grounded in stolen labor and stolen land, right? So 
what does that mean for everything that this nation has done and everything that has come after those initial, you know, real crimes has reinforced that intentionally or unintentionally. So whatever system or issue you care about, it has to have that lens if you're ever going to get to real justice, right? Or an outcome that really matters. And, you know, frankly, it's even going to matter if, if your issue is healthcare, whether if you're not using a racial justice lens, we will never get to the levels of um, the outcomes that you see for healthcare, because we know that the history of our medical system means that it is inherently racist. The outcomes for Black people are worse. The treatments that Black people are offered are not the same. That continues to be true. So, yes, yeah, so my preference, as I said, is to understand that whatever you're doing, race is at the center and at the core of it in some fundamental ways. It's going to take work for you to understand that. It's going to take work for you to figure out how to address it. And you need to be accountable for it. But, you know, you want to eliminate heart attacks or reduce heart attacks in this country. You better be thinking about race. You want to look at maternal mortality. Guess who's dying? Look at COVID. You know, there's just, there's no way you can, you can, you know, there's a study that that um, black children are given less pain medication because they don't believe that they hurt. It's astonishing. And I'd certainly say, I mean, you know, when you were saying around the impact of things like COVID, I mean, that has become, you know, uh, something that's been very much a topic of debate here in the UK because the the impacts are mm. felt very unequally um, across racial divides. Yeah. Um, one thing I just wanted to ask as a, as a follow-up, I mean, I've heard differing opinions on this from from people in the world of philanthropy or sort of working and movement organizing about it feels as though there's a lot of discussion of this in the world at the moment uh, in the world of philanthropy and a lot of organizations at least on paper kind of recognizing the need to to acknowledge ra- racial justice as an issue or to kind of apply it as a lens to what they're doing but I've also heard other people saying yeah that they're doing that at the moment because of Black Lives Matter and, and it's kind of very timely but it, that'll die down again and you know 18 months later it'll all have been forgotten how optimistic are you that, that this focus will stick? Do you think this is genuinely mm. we're seeing a shift or do you worry that it might be something that gets lost, you know, a few years down the line? Oh, I absolutely worry. I worry about it in philanthropy. I worry about it in the public discourse in general. Um, you know, philanthropy in some ways responds to the public discourse, right? And and yeah. and is we are a product of the culture in which we're steeped. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, people working in philanthropy stepping up. And as I said before, so much of it being performative as a opposed to actual dollars moving, some of it is so we feel good about ourselves. I mean, I have, so this may feel like outside of of the realm of what we're talking about, but I don't know if you saw that the Jesuits have started this fund. The Jesuits are one of the wealthiest organizations in the world, right? They've got money and they are acknowledging that Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit university, was founded by them selling people to raise the capital. And so their way of dealing with that is they are creating this fund and they're, they look to raise a billion dollars and they're putting in a hundred million. And doesn't that sound lovely, but that's change for them. That's like not going to hurt, certainly. And they're going to go out and fundraise to make the Jesuits look better. Like seriously. So, you know, this kind of thing is just, and and who are they going to fundraise from that? Like the racial justice funders? 
I mean, what? So I, I, I hear these things and, and it just seems so hypocritical, right? But at the same time, you know, I want money to get to the people who need it. I am super happy for people to come on board, even in this moment. I do believe some will stay. I firmly believe that. I have to believe that to keep doing this work. But I know that just as I fear it's going to die down in terms of public attention, it will also die down in philanthropy. So that's why the urgency of getting as much done while this window is open is so critical. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I think yeah, definitely agree on on that. Um, I'm aware that we're probably coming up to to as much time as I can uh, reasonably take from you. I think just the one <laughs> other area I just wanted to touch on briefly, and I guess it's kind of it's a, a slight uh, segue, but but it relates to the idea of kind of how funders yeah um build their their mission across everything that they're doing and sort of don't see their operations in isolation um i mean it may be less relevant i guess now you you are spending down as a foundation but but i found it really interesting that you have for a long time adopted a fully re- mission related uh, investment approach so kind of uh, investing yeah. your assets in line you know not just seeing your grant makings the way that you fulfill your mission but seeing the way that you invest and use your assets as well could you just say a bit about kind of when that decision was taken and what the thinking behind that that was and, and why you think that's the right way to go yeah so so the foundation has done one-off sort of things like they divested from south african stocks during the 70s you know looking back on the history just doing some of the scanning myself the the process to to go to um, a fully screened investment portfolio happened in the early 2000s. I think it was around 2005, 2006. And, you know, at that time, finding ways to screen around racial justice issues was, there just weren't tools to do it. And there weren't investment managers who knew how to do it. So, you know, we did start screening. We kind of, you know, let's, looked at things that have impact, environmental concerns, a whole range of things. But, you know, I did feel like we were just sort of doing like the do no harm thing, but not anything particularly helpful, if you will. So we started um, a couple of things that we started working on. One was um, think about as an organizing problem, how to get tools to screen portfolios around racial justice. And so, you know, in our own small way, um, we started advocating uh, with our managers, right, and asking them questions. We started talking publicly, you know, in in the philanthropy sector and investor sectors because uh, creating demand, right, so that managers would do this because they had clients asking for it and and working with a nonprofit that was also thinking about the question of how do you design a racial justice screened portfolio. So that was one piece of work. I'm very happy to say, and I don't take ownership of this happening, but that at this point, there's a whole racial justice investors group. I'm not as active with it now because, you know, as you said, it's less relevant. We're spending out, we have what we have, we do what we do, but I'm so excited about the way that this has taken off. And then, you know, the number of foundations that are doing this, um, that uh, the number of pension funds, because that's the big money (laughs) that are doing this. And then um, we started doing direct investments. So it was also about, you know, investing in things that, um, that have not just 
not a negative impact, but can have a positive impact in communities um, that we care about. So, you know, like um, making funds available for mortgages for ITIN holders. And what that means is an ITIN is an individual taxpayer ID number. You can hold it in lieu of a social security number if you don't have documentation. It's actually totally like okay to apply for it. Banks are totally legitimate to open an account or lend you money. Many don't. And where you can find the mortgages, they're at usurious rates. So having, you know, a nonprofit community development financial institution do that lending or create the platform for it, you know, so things like that, that actually matter for people. And again, you know, we're closing those out. (laughs) We're not doing new ones. So (laughs) things come to an end. Um, listen, Laurie, I, I mean, it mostly just remains to say thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation. I think it's been absolutely fascinating. And before I, f- I finally let you go properly, is there anything that you want to sort of flag people's attention towards, the, either that you've got coming up or any kind of last thoughts you want to leave them with? Um, I don't have a book, so I won't say that. Right? Isn't that what people do at the Normally, end of these yes. things? Buy yeah, my book. Yeah. Um, see my movie. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you know, I I do think that like if I have one thing that I would flag, I would really I would really urge people, um, you know, to to think locally and and globally, right? To really think about how these things play out. It's easy to look at at the you know national scene or international scene. Um, but it can be hard, emotionally hard to, to look locally. Um, so I think I would urge people to think about that. And, you know, how is it at home? And whether that's literally your home or your community. Yeah, I mean, yeah, great thought on which to leave. And I think one that feels more relevant than ever, after, you know, after this year when we've all been forced to think Absolutely. very locally. Um, yeah. Great. I mean, thanks ever so much, Laurie. Um, you know, I, I may well uh, take it upon myself to uh, try and get you back on the podcast at some point in the future and see how things <laughs> are going with the plans for spending out. <laughs> but for now, uh, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Laurie for coming on the podcast. Um, I thought that was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to things that you might be interested in that we talked about. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages of the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you like stuff that's more about the history and kind of theory of philanthropy. Uh, If you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, uh, give us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, tell all your friends about it, and I'll see you next time. Bye! (laughs) 